Hey everyone, I'm Chris Hall and you're listening to the Downtime Podcast, where we delve deep into the gravity-based side of mountain biking. This week we've got an awesome interview with Tracy Hanna to find out all about her incredible World Cup career. But first up, Kotick have got a new bike and I want to tell you a bit about it. It's called the Jet and it sits in between their Flare and Rocket models. It's got 140mm of travel paired with either a 150 or 140mm fork and it's a 29er. Now, I've had a Flare Max with the 132 rear travel conversion and I loved it, but there were definitely occasions where I found myself out of my depth and watching riders on longer travel bikes pulling away. I also hoped to go riding in the Alps this year and wanted some more travel, so at that time I opted for the Rocket Max. However, now, if you want something that is basically a do-it-all bike, then the Jet is the one for you. It's designed to be a killer climber, but also to be super capable on the downs as well. There's no doubt that Kotick's steel frames and long shot geometry give an incredible ride quality, a ton of grip and insane confidence. So adding in this extra travel over the flareback will allow you to make the most of that across even more gnarly terrain, without stepping up to the full enduro racing kind of levels that the Rocket Max is capable of. Kotick have tweaked the drop link suspension a little on this bike by using a longer link and that does a couple of key things. Firstly, it allows them to provide more seat tube insertion which will allow you to get a longer dropper post in there and it also changes up the kinematics a little, still providing that familiar Kotick drop link lively but supported feel but it allows a bit more room to tune it to your preferences and Kotick believe it will allow more people to get on a better setup for them. Unfortunately, I've not had the chance to ride one yet, but I did manage to ride with Sai before this lockdown where he was on a jet with a massive grin on his face and he was absolutely flying. I couldn't get away from him on my Rocket Max on trails that I know way better than he does. So that says a lot about the bike. If you're from the UK and you like to buy local, then Kotick are doing a very limited launch edition of this bike, which will be made at Five Land Bikes up in Scotland. There are only going to be 30 available in limited edition colours too. So get involved now if you want one. The Taiwan made bikes will then be here early in 2021 and are available for pre-order now. So a massive thanks to Kotick for supporting this episode of the show. And if you're keen to find out more about the brand new Jet, then just head to kotick.co.uk. There are a ton of resources there to help you find out more, including an in-depth tech walkthrough from Sai, some first reviews, geo charts, and even a video that they shot in a cave. Yep, a cave. Head to kotick.co.uk to check it all out. Don't forget to make sure you subscribe to the show. It's free and it means you'll get every episode as soon as it drops. Super easy to do and there's buttons for all the major platforms like iTunes and uh, Spotify over at downtimepodcast.com forward slash subscribe. While you're on that page, you can also join my newsletter for a weekly dose of interesting bike related stuff, competitions, products I've been enjoying and more. If you want to help support the show, then you can head to downtimepodcast.com forward slash shop and grab yourself a treat. We've got t-shirts, sweatshirts and hoodies and they're all totally organic, printed to order and shipped with no single-use plastic. A massive thank you to everyone who's ordered them so far and I hope you're enjoying wearing them. If you're not already, then please give me a follow on Instagram and Facebook where I'm at Downtime Podcast. It's a super good way for me to be able to interact a bit more with the listeners so the more who follow, the better. All right. This week, it's time to sit down with the awesome Tracy Hanna. We've been trying to put this together for a while, but as Tracy has recently announced her retirement from World Cup racing and was stuck in a quarantine hotel in Australia, it seemed like a good time. Find out all about Tracy's amazing World Cup career, which included a four-year break after her first season spent working in a mine, some horrific injuries, a home world champs, an incredible overall battle, and much, much more. So, without further ado, here's Tracy Hanna. Tracy Hannah, welcome to the Downtime Podcast. How's things with you? Uh, good. Yeah, finally. I feel like we've been trying to do this for a while. 
Yeah. Now feels like a really good time, though, yeah? <laughs> oh, yeah, it's perfect. How are things with me? Uh, yeah, I mean, I can't really complain, but just hanging out in my uh, quarantine. <laughs> yeah, we were saying just before we hopped on the call that it's uh, yeah. pretty restrictive. Yeah, Australia is super strict. Like, I appreciate that they're strict with their rules and stuff, but um, a little bit overdramatic on the TV and on the news. So I think we're trying to be a little bit of a mini USA in that regard. And it's a bit dramatic once, like, since I've just been in Europe for two months. You can see that uh, Australia's overdoing it on the drama just a teeny tiny bit. But <laughs> it's nice oh, well. that that we can like you can actually walk around here without masks and you don't have the threat of getting COVID in the street. So that is a good thing. Yeah, definitely. Very different from what's going on in uh, in the UK right now. So it's good stuff. Yes. Well, well let's, um, let's start from the start and um, wind the clock right back. Tell us a little bit about where you grew up because it sounds like it was, uh, it was pretty good fun. Yes. So I grew up in... Hmm. It's it depends how far back you want to start because I was born in Victoria and okay. lived there till I was about six, I think. And then um it's it was it's cold down there, kind of rainy. I mean England, Victoria, same, same. Where I lived anyway. It's amazing, it's beautiful, but in winter it's freezing. And yeah. um I guess dad was doing seasonal work and decided that we would move to Cairns, which is, I don't know exactly, but it's probably three days drive from where we lived in Victoria. So he had a truck at the time. So I don't remember exact details, but he packed up the truck. They like set up this bed in his truck. We had like, there was we have um there's four kids in the family packed up the truck and then did like a kind of a road trip that lasted I'm pretty sure it lasted around six months getting to Cairns it was we Sweet. lived the dream doing that yeah and then um we got up there and lived in a caravan park for a few weeks until we got a house and then we moved into this two-story old country house on a farm and that was pretty much the start of our outdoor lifestyle. Yeah, and uh, your parents were like pretty keen to let you be outside a lot, let you take a little bit of risk and and be pretty adventurous when you were kids. Yeah, never ever, like we were never inside kids, always outside and I just remember being inside was almost like a – a treat because they just not forced but they were always like no outside time now and I mean this is the time where we didn't have iPods iPhones i tablets computers all that stuff this is when we just had inside things like books and rarely TV and they still wanted us to be outside so when I look back now I'm so thankful that they were super strict with us being outside and playing outside and doing things outside and risk wise. I mean, I don't remember them really ever being too worried when we got hurt or I think because we're outside so much, we're kind of not getting accidentally hurt that much either. Like I never Mm -hmm. remember having that many injuries just from playing outside. 
Awesome. So, no, nah, our parents are super cool in that regard. Yeah. And is it right that your dad bought you a car when you were nine? Oh, yeah. Hilarious. So <laughs> we got to this. The, the house that I'm talking about is called Ballenden Kerr. And we got to that house when I was seven years old. And um, I begged for a motorbike. Please, can I have a motorbike? I want a motorbike. Motorbike. My dad always had motorbikes. I don't remember if my brothers had motorbikes at the time. And I was just like, please, I want a Wee 50. Every Wee 50 I saw just wanted one. And then he come home with this Hilux Ute thing. And he was like, well, I got you a car. Me and my sister, actually. She was, she's three and a half years younger than me. And so I was seven. So she was like five or four and a half or five. And he said, ah, oh, we couldn't afford a motorbike, but I bought you this car. <laughs> so taught us how to drive it and I awesome. mean I didn't think it wasn't normal to be driving around a car when I was eight years old <laughs> like really good drive it was a um column shift so it was even quite hard to change the gears I don't think many people even know what column shift is nowadays yeah could you see over the steering wheel oh like- well dad was very good at engineering so he welded the seat up and forward <laughs> which prevented my brothers from driving it and trashing it. And he also re revamped, I guess, like the accelerator clutch and brake so that me and my sister could reach without um, not with being able to see over the steering wheel. That's amazing. Just crazy to think about now and hilarious. Yeah, that's so cool. And, and bikes were like something that came to you pretty early. Was that an influence from your brother's? Um, I mean, we always kind of had bikes. I know my brothers always had bikes from when they were young. And then there was always some kind of bike laying around in the yard or we never, ever had new bikes. I don't even remember a new bike even being at our house until the year that Michael was sponsored. But, um, bikes in general, we always had a bike each for sure, and and then my brothers obviously grew out of their bikes, so me and my sister got handed down bikes all the time, and there was always bikes and trikes and toys to be ridden because, like I said, my dad can engineer almost anything, so even if it wasn't a bike that fit us, he made it. <laughs> awesome. And it was yeah. BMX where you started your racing career. Age four, was it? Yeah, my first BMX race I was, well, I don't know if it was my first BMX race, but my first national championship, I was four and a half. Wow. And I even remember that race. I was very angry because I didn't win. <laughs> so I was just going to say, <laughs> were you competitive from the start? But it so sounds competitive. Like you were. I have this report card from school saying that I was like um, something about me being angry that I didn't do well in swimming but I just need to learn to have fun and not be so competitive and I was in grade two or something so (laughs) I was very determined and competitive from a very young age yeah but not necessarily winning straight away because quite a lot of like young talented riders that come through like you look at their first ever race and they won it sort of thing so it was an obvious yeah I mean it feels like I yes well I never I don't know why but I never really was that person who was like 
unbelievable on a bike. I was never that person. I was like, she's winning everything. She's going to win everything. I just used to be extremely competitive. That's BMX anyway, but I was smaller than some of the other girls were a lot larger than me, so that helped. Uh When you're four years old, being bigger helps. (laughs) Definitely, definitely. And it, it was a while before you got your first mountain bike. I think you were about 12, is that right? Yeah, I think Dad got us. Actually, that was my first brand new bike. I got a Merida. It was yellow Mm -hmm. with red forks when I was eleven or twelve. I can't remember exactly. And um, yeah, that was my first mountain bike. That was a classic. Yeah, definitely. Where I guess you were kind of straight out into the rainforest, yeah, from where you were living. So there was plenty of riding to be had. Yeah, I mean, we didn't ride that much my brother rode more than us we just rode our mountain bikes kind of around the farm which wasn't rainforest it's like sugarcane so Mm -hmm. it was up roads and we built like with my um not Michael but my other brother Wayne we used to build jumps and tracks in the backyard and there was like a little bit of rainforest in the forbidden section of the farm where we weren't allowed so much that we used to go to and kind of build tracks <laughs> but, um so I guess yeah we were pretty much on mountainous kind of trails from the very beginning yeah and was it always the the adrenaline side of the bike that you were enjoying rather than the guess the more kind of cross-country aspect of things oh yeah I hated cross-country I did cross-country races sometimes and I absolutely hated it because when you're that young you weren't allowed to race downhill and especially like when I was when I was young because there's definitely no way they were letting young girls ride downhill back then and um Oh, I hated cross country so much. I didn't even know why. I still hate it. I hate cross country, enduro, pedaling. <laughs> I don't mind it. Like I'll do it training and I'll go on my own. But if you go with me, I'm so angry. I hate it. Ask, yeah, you can pretty much. Um, anybody listening to this that knows me will definitely agree. That it's hell. <laughs> I don't it's know impressive. why. Yeah, it's impressive no that you've got why. that far in your career hating pedaling. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I did it. Maybe that's why I got so mentally strong by overcoming my hate for it. But <laughs> that's the, I that's won't the key be going to success. To Fair to enough. Guarantee that. All right. And then, do you remember your first downhill race? Then, how old were you? Um, I was like my first big downhill race. I was fourteen. Okay. So my first national titles, I was 14, but there was like some local races that I used to do when I was like 13, 14-ish. Is that more of a, like, were you more naturally able in that? Like, did it, did you have more success straight away in the downhill side of things? Well, there was like no, until I went to nationals when I was 14, there was like at home or even anywhere close to home, there was definitely no, I wasn't racing girls. I was just racing boys. So I was never like, oh, my gosh, she's beating us. It was just like I was just racing because I liked it and it was fun. It wasn't like I'm this superstar that's going to be everybody. (laughs) I crashed a lot as well. (laughs) (laughs) And what about at nationals? Yeah, so my first nationals I raced – was like a super gnarly track. I 
in Cairns, we don't have like the gnarliest tracks. And I went to this, the Nationals track and it rained and there was rocks and slides and everything. And I come down, like, I think I crashed three or four times and I just slotted into second. There was only an elite category. I raced elite and I was like, sick, I got second. I did, yeah, it was actually a really good result at my first ever Nationals being 14. The girls were kind of yeah. like, ah, oh, dang, she's uh, she's fast. So that, yeah, that probably was a good race for me. And sad race for um, everyone else. <laughs> so how do we get from there then to the point where you're starting to race World Cups? Like, Yeah, so I met this girl, Jess. She was over in Australia. She's from the US in Colorado. And she was in Australia doing the National Series, but she was studying in Brisbane at university and she we became really good friends she came to Cairns riding and stuff and then she said you need to come to America like to Colorado and race our summer series you'll love it it'll be amazing you know you get some overseas experience so me and her just I was 16 at the time we just begged my parents please <laughs> please let me go please let me go and finally like two weeks before she was leaving to go home they said okay, you can go. Because I'd never even been on a plane, so I'd never left home or anything. Wow. And um, that was my first real taste of traveling, going overseas and racing was going with her to stay with her family in Colorado. Amazing. So what was the racing like over there at that point? So it was like we did a few Norbers, but mainly we did this series called Mountain State Cups rounds. And to me it was crazy. So I was at my first, the first one. And I was just like, walked the track and then I did my first practice run and I got to the bottom, cried. I cried. I said, I can't do this sport. It's so gnarly. These tracks are insane. I hate it. It's too scary. I hate it. I don't want to do it anymore. Just crying like it's too scary. That was after my first run overseas. (laughs) I was yeah, I was like so upset, like, nah, it's way too scary. This is in the Rocky Mountains, so. Pretty extreme um, tracks. Oh, yeah, they taped the track like three meters wide. There's huge braking bumps, and I just said, nah, this is not for me, and I won that race. Oh, wow. Yeah, and I was 16, and then I ended up winning the um, that Mountain States Cup series after all that. So competitive, Tracy, must have quite liked that. So I guess I've always liked a bit of punishment mentally and, but yeah, I definitely remember not wanting to do it and being so extremely scared of the speed and how gnarly the track was. And I was like, I can't do this. And then you went and won it. Yeah. And then I, uh, I guess I did a few more laps and I must've eventually liked it and then won. So is is that quite a, is that quite a common thing for you to kind of feel scared and maybe out of your depth initially but then work your way through it you're the sort of person that almost enjoys that being in that position um i i definitely like um a challenge but i i don't like being out of my depth depth on a track for sure and it was only because i'd never seen or experienced what the tracks overseas were like and i wasn't expecting i mean when you know, when I flew home, but every time I went overseas, I looked around like, where's the mountains that I ride down? Like it just 
they just look like anthills and you get over there and the mountains are huge. The terrain is like insane. So it's like nothing I'd ever seen in my life. And I think that was overwhelming. Yeah. And a good training camp though at that age to learn how to ride that kind of stuff. Oh yeah, for sure. I was 16 and I spent like three months just racing around Colorado and America just doing kind of like their national series, I guess you could call it with my friends having a blast, but it was quite an experience for sure. Yeah. And was it that trip when you did your first World Cup as well? Was your first World Cup in Mont Saint-Anne? Yeah, my first World Cup was in Mont Saint-Anne, but that was not for a few years later. The, uh, the first time I went to America, I was 16, and then I went back a couple of times just doing little trips, like three-month trips, just racing the local races. And then eventually I got to the age where I was old enough to race a World Cup. I think the first World Cup I was 19. No, maybe I was 17. Yeah, I think we did pop up to Monsignor for one World Cup one year. I think I might have been 18 then. Yeah. What was it like the first time you were at an event? Did you Had you been following the sport then? Did you kind of know who all the top riders were and – like have your idols on the same track? Yeah, I guess I kind of followed it, but not, I didn't follow it crazy. Like I wasn't like one of those super fans, but I did follow it in the sense that I was like, yeah, that's what I want to do. That looks sick. I wasn't like obsessive with it or anything. I knew who the fast riders were. And um, so my first World Cup was Montsignan. And I, I'm pretty sure I must have been 18 when I went there. It would have been the year before I raced Worlds. Um, yeah, so the first, but when I got to that track, I was like a tiny little ant on a beast of a track, and that track was super scary. It's so gnarly at that age, riding that kind of terrain. I was like, holy moly. <laughs> yeah, super fast as well, like yeah, flat out on the fast. piece. and flat out and the girls that I raced were just insane they were so fast and they whooped my butt well sure. I mean ninth place in elite it's not bad <laughs> yeah uh it was all right <laughs> but <laughs> I mean when you got when you're competitive you like that was a butt whooping but I mean at the same time it was like yeah that was my first world cup in against riders that are just mentally just crazy yeah fair enough yeah and then your next your next big race was uh was downhill world champs back in new zealand in rotorua i think yeah i think that Um, was the next yeah i didn't do much overseas compete i'm trying to i should have wrote down my schedule i'm hopeless 2006 i think the new zealand world champs were yeah that's right yeah and so you'd have been in junior then yeah, so that was my second year junior. I never went um, to the World Champs the first year I was a junior because it was in Italy, so it was ridiculous to even imagine to go to Europe when I was that age. But because it was in New Zealand, I was lucky that um, we could afford to go to New Zealand and race. And, yeah, so that was my probably my first really big race because you have a lot more pressure riding for your country with your jersey on and, world champs and it was also my last chance in junior worlds to kind of prove who I was 
So yeah. And did you feel like you were in a position to be able to take the win that weekend? Um, it was up and down. It was a it was very strange weather, and I mean, at home we're not used to the wet, slippery kind of weather, so. I was definitely a little bit uncomfortable, but I wanted to win. And, yeah, I guess I just trained on the track and tried to put myself in my, the best position I could to be able to take the win. And obviously when I took the win, it was an amazing feeling. And I guess that was the start of the motivation to, you know, once you get the taste for winning, you kind of love it and you want to do it <laughs> more and more. <laughs> Yeah. Well, and, and after that, it, you, I think you did a, basically a full World Cup season in 2007. Was that your first time heading to Europe then? Yeah. So that's another crazy story. Philip Polk was in, I was doing runs in Cairns at my local track with dad. And I ran into Philip Polk, which I didn't know who it was. And um, he was doing, he was on a holiday in Australia and he was doing runs of my local track. And then um, me and dad were like, oh, you can jump in with us, you know, like I've been doing runs every day, blah, blah, blah. And he was like, man, you're so fast. You definitely need to race like the World Cups. And I was like, oh, no way. I can't race the World Cups. That's like, they're so far away. And you know, we never planned that I would go to Europe. Yeah. And um, he said, if you come, if you race the World Cups, you can stay with me and kind of travel with my team. They won't mind. And, you know, in between the races, you can just stay at my parents' house. So <laughs> I was like, please, Dad, please, can I go? And begging him again for this opportunity to go to Europe. And my parents said yes again. And then that was kind of how I got my first World Cup series in was because Philip let me stay with his family and travel with his team. So That's amazing. What yeah. what team was that then? Oh gosh. Um Yeah, I can't remember. I let's see. I have no idea what team it was. Sam Blankensop was on it as well, ironically. Uh -huh. So Sam Blingensop, Philip Polk, and it was, what was the team called? It's a real weird name. Just seeing if I can find out. Hang on. God, yeah, <laughs> no, um, I'm trying to think of it. Um, yeah, 2007. I can't. 2007, yeah. It's got me puzzling. Hang on a sec. Sam Blingensop. Was it like Gravity Group? Or Gravity something? Group. Gravity Group or Gravity Group Racing or something like that. It, yeah. Peter, <laughs> I think, was the team manager. Yeah. So you were basically a privateer but with a, like a little bit of somewhere to stay, basically in a tent to pit out of. Yeah, kind of. I mean, I definitely wasn't welcome as such. But <laughs> Philip, Philip and Sam, luckily, like we got along really well, and Philip and Sam liked me, which made it easier for like the team manager to be like, "Oh, fine, she can, she can, you know what I mean." But um, yeah, yeah. generally, it was like not like I wasn't exactly welcomed with open arms from their team manager. But thankfully, Thank I got along with the team so well that I, that he kind of had no choice. 
Yeah. And it went, I mean, it went pretty well, didn't it? For a first full oh, World yeah. Cup season, yeah. first time in Europe, that was a yeah. bit of a dream. It went super well. I mean, I ended up winning my first World Cup that year and then everything changed and I was his friend, blah, blah, blah. But yeah, I was super lucky that year because Orange actually sponsored me and gave me some cash to race in Europe. Okay. Nice. So I was riding the orange bikes that year and they supported me as much as they could. They didn't really have a World Cup team that year, so they couldn't offer me that. But where they were, the races that they were at and where they were attending, then they would help me out a lot. I think there's um, Julian Camellini was on orange that year as well. I'm pretty okay. sure. Yeah. Yeah. I remember because I thought he was cute. <laughs> I was like, oh, my gosh, he's so cute. He rides the same bike as me. Nice. <laughs> and you took the win in, in Schlabming, yeah? Over, I think you beat Sabrina, Johnny, yeah. Mariella Sana, and Tracy Mosley for the win there. Yeah, exactly. So that was insane. And my brother was also um, racing as well. He was on Cannondale, so being at the World Cups, I could pop over and see him at his pits as well, which is super helpful because his mechanic would kind of help me out. And it was kind of a bits and bobs of privateer style, but I mean, I thought I was living the dream. So, yeah, definitely. At, at yeah. that age, traveling around Europe, riding mountain bikes, yeah. it's got to feel pretty good. And yeah. I think silver medal at World Champs this, that year as well, Fort William. Silver or bronze, uh, I, th- bronze I think I got sorry. third yeah. at Fort William, yeah. Yeah, yeah, which is insane. Like Fort William was an insane track. So, yeah, I guess just um, every race I progressively got better and also like because I was hanging out with Philip, he trained like a dog and he is always telling me I was like not fit enough or not strong enough or I thought you said you trained and I was just like I I do train I just hate pedal (laughs) so you know he's always pushing me to be better and yeah and as the year went on I just got better and better yeah well and so after a season like that I guess Mm -hmm. you'd kind of hope that you'd be able to get like some kind of ride for the following season. Yeah, exactly. Were, were you are we having conversations with brands? Like what was going yeah. on? Yeah, so like I, obviously I finished third at World Champs, but I also finished third overall in the World Cup series and I won the World Cup in Schladming. So I was hoping that I could get a deal that would help me like support. One, I wanted to be like everything to be paid for that I didn't have to pay any expenses out of my own pocket Mm -hmm. and then I wanted enough money to kind of live for the time that I was away and that's um, fair ask yeah exactly because I went home from that season like I was broke I had to go sorry I just dropped something I had to go straight back to work and um start paying off credit card debt and paying my parents back and my grandparents you know I'd borrowed money from wherever I could to even race that year and I I didn't have like the funds to kind of put myself backwards the next year so I was hoping for like a pretty good deal I thought it was reasonable and I got offered like a few spots on teams but I was like yeah like we're gonna give you a free bike and this much money but what are you talking about girls don't girls don't get paid girls 
we don't need girls racing world cars and I was like what are you talking about and and most of the teams that I spoke to were just like we can get this girl for free and I am like are you kidding me girls are riding for free this is ruining the sport for women's racing and I said well no, I'm I'm not racing then. I'm not racing for that much money and I'm not paying my own way to come over again because I don't have the money. And that's fair when play. I said, um, I I don't think that it's fair that that women first of all, that the girls that were racing at the time were accepting offers that were unreasonable, which makes it worse for the people that when you get to the point of standing up for yourself you have no leg to stand on because they're like, well, I don't need you. I can get her for free. That's literally what I was told. Yeah, undermines it, doesn't it, I guess? Oh, yeah, completely, completely. So I said, oh, well, there's like it's not the job for me then. Europe's too far away. Yeah, and no one one came back with a counter offer at that point then. They did, but it was like it was literally like so easy to get riders for free and, I mean – yeah, it would have been great to have me on the team, but also it's like it doesn't really didn't really bother them at the time. It wasn't like, oh my gosh, she won everything, she's gonna beat everyone. It's just like that was cool. Uh, see you again. You know what I mean? Jeez. Yeah. yeah. So did you so, did you kind of fall out of love with the sport a little bit at that point? Or um, no, I never fell out of love with it. I just like at that age, Europe is so far away, and I've already had no money it was like uh I I just can't go next year I mean I need to work I need to save money and um my plan was just to save money again and go back another year it was just I couldn't go the very next year after spending all the money to be there like I got super well looked after by Philip and that but I still had to pay for everything I was still privateer you know so yeah still wiped out the bank balance yeah, exactly, exactly. So, yeah, so that kind of happened. And then so I didn't race the next year, which was 2008. Was that 2008? Yeah. Yeah, so when was the world champs in Canberra? In Canberra, good question. Yes, because this is what made me fall out of love with the sport. This is – so the world champs – so I think I skipped a year of racing. I guess I went into mini retirement, but people call it mini retirement. I didn't retire, just didn't race because I didn't have the money. Uh-huh. And then. So it would have been 2009, I think then, at Stromlo. Yes. Yeah, yes, okay. Perfect. So 2008, I didn't race because of the money, the sponsors, and I was like, yeah, whatever. And then <clears throat> world champs was coming to town and I was like oh yes I want to race world champs in Australia that'll be so good I don't remember exactly what races I'd done leading up to it but um there was like a new guy that was on the selection process for Australia and he said um if he selected me for the world champs in Australia that would be unfair to the other Australian girls who had been racing all year because I'll start again. Living in Cairns, the closest national race that we have is almost two days' drive away. 
They never have races in Queensland. So not only I couldn't afford to go overseas, I couldn't afford to race in my own country because it was extremely far to go and it's like so expensive to fly or drive, get accommodation, stay. So I didn't race that much in Australia either, but (laughs) my results were still there and I was like every time I raced nationals I was winning. And... So, yeah, so I applied, like, I was like, oh, can I race um, world champs in Australia? That'd be awesome. I, I, like, really have a good chance because I think it was two years before Tracy Mosley came to Australia to practice the world champs track and we had a national championship on it, which was the Canberra track, and she beat me by point two of a second. So I was like, yeah, they'll let me race for sure. And he said no. He said you can't race. It's not fair to the other Australian women who have been doing all the selection races to race. And I was like, like, are you seriously? And argued like, yeah, I know, insane, like so insane. And um, and I, I sold my bike. I said I hate this sport. I don't want to race for like. A country that would do that to someone and you know how many riders we were allowed to pick that year seven he picked two and Jeez. he didn't let me race and Tracy Mosley won that world championship and she'd beaten me by point two two years earlier on the same track yeah and um the f- the first Australian woman finished 20th <laughs> and I'd never finished outside the top 10 in a world cup so I, that is when I quit racing because if that doesn't make you angry at mountain bikes, there's nothing that would. And yeah. I was like, nah, this is, a stu- this is a stupid sport. I'm not racing mountain bikes anymore. And that's when I like, I sold my bikes. I didn't even have, I had no downhill bikes at all. Yeah. And you worked, you worked in a sand mine. Is that right? Yeah, so that happened and then um, I just had a normal job, normal life and I was in Cairns at the time, 19 I think I was and I was like, "Ah, I don't want to live here anymore, I'm bored, I want to do something else. So I moved from Cairns to Brisbane which is like the capital city of Queensland and um, I just worked random jobs, blah, blah, blah and then I was like, oh, I know what I want to do. I want to drive big trucks in the mines. I want to get a mining job. So I worked like super hard for six months on resumes and letters and doing training and study to figure out how to get a job in the mines. Finally, I got an opening and that's when I started my traineeship in the sand mine. I think that was 2010. Yeah, that was 2010 for sure. Yes. So, like, I guess I had a year of just working random jobs. And then I started working in the sand mine, which was my second next dream job, and I loved it. <laughs> yeah, those those oh. trucks, they have a massive, right? Yeah, so it was a little – it wasn't quite my dream job, but that was my dream. But the mine I worked at was a sand mine, and – the machinery was like a little bit smaller, but still the same amount of cool. Like I learned to drive an excavator. I got to drive trucks, a forklift. Like I got to work on the dredge. 
got to like see the whole, like my traineeship was a trainee operator. So I got to work in all areas of the mine and learn how each section kind of worked. So it was literally a dream job. (laughs) So at some point though, you decided you'd get back on a mountain bike, right? What what happened? Did you get to a point where you were missing it a bit or was there something that yeah, I mean, drove it was, you back that way? Yeah, it was, I worked full, I had to work. It's better to know the story about work. I had to leave home at 4.15 to get to, yeah. So I Whoa. left home at 4.15 to get to the boat at 445 4.40. And then I took a ferry, which is like a half an hour ferry, to get to this island, and the island is where I worked. And so then I used to leave home at 4.15 and get home at like 5.30 p.m., I think, and then I would go straight to like CrossFit classes, (laughs) which sounds ridiculous. Anyway, so because I lived in Brisbane, I had – like a lot of friends down there. And one day my one of my good friends, Remy Morton, said, there's a local race. Do you want to come? We've no, we know a friend of ours who has your old orange. So someone had bought my old orange years ago. It was still like a full bike. He'd grown out of it but still kept it. And um, mm-hmm. so they were like, you can use your old orange. Let's go to a local race. It'll be fun. So on the weekends, me and Remy Morton and Jim, his dad, just used to go to local races and just ride for fun. Nice. Yeah, so that's kind of how I got back into it. It was like I didn't kind of seek it out, but it just kind of happened and I loved it because there was absolutely no pressure. So we started going to all the races and I started like I won that race and I won that race and I won that series and we started like stretching a bit like let's go to national races. <laughs> and then and I was like, yeah, that's sick. And I, I was borrowing a bike at the time. Next minute, a bike in a box, a GT, Michael sponsored by GT at the time, full GT in a box turned up at my door. And he had organized to get me a new bike from GT. And I was like, this is sick. So then I had like, yeah, then I had my very own bike again. (laughs) Organized by Michael. Thank you, Michael. Yeah. And um, yeah, and then I just started taking like an extra day off here or there to go race some of the national races that were around. And you won every single one of them, yeah? I won every race that I entered. <laughs> Did you feel good? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was sweet and it was like fun and I loved the competition. I always loved mountain biking and it kind of flowed on from there. So I won like the local races and we went to nationals. I started winning the national series. Then we raced national champs and I won the national champs and then it was just like sweet. I love this sport. It's so fun. But every week I still had to go back to work and I was still working like the 10 hour, ten hours a day. And it's lucky that I was fit from doing gym. Man, I was fit enough to ride downhill, I guess. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, how did the United ride thing come about then? Because 2012 was when you started with those guys, yeah? Yeah, so um, – so my brother's contract ended with GT 
a, almost like within a few months of when he got me the bike, which is handy. And um, so Kus Kus was talking to Michael about, you know, being on the team and what he could offer him and blah, blah, blah. And then um, Michael said in passing, so like my sister kind of rides a little bit and I gave her a GT, but, you know, I don't know if you want to think about putting her on the team or whatever. And Couscous is like, you know, he'll take anything and make it huge. He just loves like creating things. He's a creator. And um, he was like so keen for me to be on the team. He's like, yeah, that'll be sick. That'll be Tracy Henna, Michael Henna on the same team. And he's like, you can just race like one or two World Cups and World Champs and we'll send you a bike, we'll give you clothes and, you know, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, yeah, that sounds good. And he gave me like a little bit of salary because obviously I had my full-time job. Yeah. So I was like, yeah, that sounds good. So then I signed up with him the same year that Michael did to race like one, two, three World Cups and that was it. First World Cup came around and we're all together, South Africa, and I won the first World Cup. And he has quite a comeback, isn't all it? All of our minds. Because <laughs> like I hadn't prepared for it. I was working full time and it was just like we were all kind of in shock and it was amazing. And then the team was like winning the team overall and stuff like that so we're like this is ridiculous and then he was like you have to race every race you have to like you need to race full-time blah blah blah. I was like I can't have a job like (laughs) I know like it's sick and stuff but I'm I'm working and then he said or I said um if you pay me what I would get for working for like the three months, I'll take three months off and um, and I'll race the series. That would work. And so he was like, yeah, that would work. So we made a deal that he would pay me what I would have got if I was working and my work was fine with it because they didn't have to pay me while I was taking the time off. And Perfect. they were kind of excited too because every weekend I would be like, oh, I'm going to a race in blah, blah, blah. They'll be like, cool, come back Monday, like, How'd you go? Oh, I won. Like, I'm going to a race and blah, blah, blah. Cool, whatever. Monday, come back. How'd you go? Oh, I won. Went to South Africa, come back. Like, how'd you go? Well, I won. (laughs) And it was just like, whoa, that's crazy. And so it got all exciting at work as well. So they were super positive about it as well. And then, um, yeah, so I ended up racing – that year I raced up until the sixth round and that's where drama happened. <laughs> yeah, Val d'Azer, right? Yeah, Val d'Azer. So I was Go doing on. reasonably well in the World Cup Series. I think I was in the top – I was definitely in the top three. Some of the tracks like Val d'Azer, ooh la la, it wasn't like South Africa. <laughs> I kind of struggled on that track. But, um, yeah, so I was having like one of the best – years ever and living the dream I was on a team I was like this is sick Val I just completely smashed myself I don't remember anything about what happened I don't remember I remember like some 
sections of the first week of when like the accident happened, but I don't have a very clear memory of about the first week of when I had the accident. Jeez. Yeah, it was a big one, right? So broken femur, collarbone, bruised lung. Yep. Yep. Broken femur, broken collarbone, airlifted out. The funny, not funny, but a funny story is, you know, Valdezera is like the steepest um, ski resort in France, like one of the steepest mounds. So, um, you know, when there's like a red flag on the track and helicopter comes in, you're always like, oh, shit, that sucks. Sorry for whoever it is. Well, my brother didn't know that I'd crashed. And there was like a red flag and he was coming up on the chairlift and Rachel was um, standing at the top of the track when he got at the top of the chairlift, sorry, when he got there and he knew straight away like, oh, man, it's Tracy. She's the one who's crashed. So the track was closed and the marshals had their red flags and they're like, no, you can't go down. So he goes down the side of the mountain on his bike (laughs) like a free rider like sending it down the side of the mountain to get to where I'd crashed. And he has people screaming at him like, you're not allowed to go, you're not allowed to go. And he was just free riding down the side of Valda's head trying to get to me. Awesome. What's Good lad. And he made it. Awesome. Oh, yeah, he made I mean, he could have needed the helicopter worse than I did, but he made it. <laughs> That's one of the funniest so they, parts of that. That's amazing. Yeah, so, yeah. I mean, that's a big injury to recover from. So I've, I, yeah. um, I've broken my femur. It was the first no bone I ever way. broke. Yeah. And, Ooh, uh, yeah. so I can sort actually, of empathize. No, I broke my collarbone actually. <laughs> but yeah, one. not, not a pleasant one. Right. So talk us a yes. little bit through what the recovery was like for something like that. Mm. Well, I don't know how severely yours broke, but mine wasn't too bad. I don't think. It was okay. like um, it broke um, super close to my hip, which is kind of gnarly. And then I had surgery the very next day. They put a rod in it. And a few days later, I remember they getting me out of bed saying, actually, no, it wasn't a few days. Mm, see, I've lost my, lost my mind. <laughs> it wasn't a few days because I couldn't get up. Because I had no hem, I had really low hemoglobin. So every time I sat up, I passed out. I had to okay. lay down and I slept most of the time. But maybe it was like a week later, they were getting me out of bed, like putting weight on it already and everything. That's mad, huh? <laughs> That's the Frenchies for you. But recovery wise, <laughs> I think it was harder to recover mentally than it was physically for sure. Right. Yeah. Because of the, yeah. like, was that a fear thing, do you think? Or. Um, I mean, it's so, it's so, um, what's the word? Like you feel so fragile when you break your femur because you, you know that, that it's not even that I know because someone told me that it's the strongest bone in my body. My body is like, I like can't use my whole leg. And even when the doctor said you can put weight on it. My uh, my body refused to put weight on it. And mm. I had to do like what's it been now, eight, 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 eight years, even like up to six years, I had so much physio because my body physically would not engage my muscles because it was still protecting them. 
my wow, glutes okay. were still not switching on because if I didn't do like the rehab exercises every day, my mind was just like, no, I'm not switching that on. That's danger zone right there. So recovery like mentally, subconsciously was extremely hard because my body thought that that part of my body was kind of done. It was like, no, nah, yeah. that doesn't work and that's scary. So let alone mentally and then physically on top of that. Yeah. You got back to racing the following season in 2013, but it was yeah. it wasn't till Fort William 2017 that you got back on the top step. Do you think do you think that was kind of all part of the recovery process to get back there? Like Yeah. Well, so my first race was six months later, that was national champs. And then um six, seven, eight months after I broke my femur, I was filming in Cairns and crashed and I broke my collarbone again. Uh, the other one wasn't it so yeah yeah, the other collarbone and then that I pretty much started writing three weeks after that broke because I got a plate and I was like it's all right and then I traveled (laughs) I went overseas and I think that was when I went to Fort William I was like umming and ahhing about getting to Fort William but I did race Fort William I don't think I did super well top 10 maybe in Fort William that year, 2013. Uh-huh. Oh, yeah. And then um, okay. went to, yeah, so then I was doing the se- season, which was the season after I broke my leg, and um, at we got to Crankworks France and I crashed on a drop and I broke my other collarbone again. So every three months I pretty much just kept breaking collarbone after collarbone. That was July, so July – so within the year, I broke my collarbone three times in my femur. So not I was a great like, year. This is insane. <laughs> this is retarded. And world champs in South Africa with that year, which was obviously my ultimate goal after winning South Africa the year before. So it was yeah. a bit of a bummer for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it did eventually come back around for that 2017 Fort William win. Did you? Did you have any mental coaching to help with that side of the recovery process? Yeah, I had – I eventually had from like the advice from Couscous was, was like you need to see someone. It wasn't like you need to see a psychologist. You're crazy. He's just like you're not dealing with it. So obviously when you live with people and you're on the team with people, they can see how you're dealing with it. And obviously it's like super hard mentally to cope with that being super competitive, pushing yourself to try and get back to the top and then just having injury after injury. And it wasn't till he said, you actually, you should see someone. I think that this off season, you should really focus on your mental. And that's the year I did. And that made the biggest difference is probably dealing with everything that had happened and gone on and accepting that I wasn't where I wanted to be or maybe where I used to be or where I expected to be, but kind of letting the process happen and, and building rather than just trying to be at the top and falling. It's it's yeah. building the blocks to get there instead of jumping there, if you know what I mean. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Were there any particular kind of tools or techniques that they helped you work on to, like, get back to the top or? Um, 
gosh, it's hard to remember now. I think personally it was just being okay with being mediocre. Right. Because I had so much and I've always put pressure on myself to just be the best and do the best that I can. And I obviously didn't feel like I was doing that. So I didn't feel like I was giving everything I could. I didn't think I was where I should have been. And once I accepted that, you know, it was okay to be where I was is when I could start, you know, being, you know, rewarding myself for making little steps instead of just getting down on myself for not being where I should have been. So I think it's like such a huge mental thing. Did that feel really good when you started taking that approach? Oh, for sure. Kind of, yeah. 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 A lot better. I went from like being disappointed at every race to being like, okay, what can I do to be better? What did I do that was good this weekend? What, what did I do that, you know, I don't have to do next race and how can I be better at the next race rather than, man, you suck. You absolutely <laughs> suck balls, which I was like in a position where I was saying that to myself, just like you suck. Like why you, do you suck? Did you, did you find it hard to turn that part of your brain off, that critical element? Or yeah, did you- yeah, and I still do. And it is super hard. Like when you're that kind of person, you have to be so aware of, so aware that you're doing that. So turning it off is like, I don't think you can fully turn it off, but you can argue with yourself. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, you, you're conscious of it, and you can, yeah, exactly. you can control it a bit. Yeah, yeah. and um, I'm definitely at that point now. Like, I feel like I'm the strongest mentally that I've ever been, cool. for sure. Well, yeah, let's talk a little bit about that 2017 season then, yep. because it was the year where World Champs was going to be in your hometown of. Cairns. Yeah, cool. Let's talk about that. Yeah, and it was. No, I, I guess it was no. It was no secret in the sport that you and Mick were both very much focused on that race and not really yeah. focused on the overall. But yeah. then you take the win at Fort William, and uh, you end up with a leader's jersey. Did that throw things a bit? Like, how did that impact Super, the year yeah. for you? Yeah, my focus was Cairns. I was like. I'm going to train hard for Cairns. I mean, when you have an opportunity like that, you don't let it slide. And we had the opportunity to have World Champs in our hometown. And with, like, the couple of leading World Cups leading up to it, it was pretty clear that we weren't, like, the best on the track. We weren't finishing first or anything. So we had a lot of work to do to get to get good on the Cairns track. And... um. I think because we worked so hard to be good on the style of the Cairns World Cup track, the results in the World Cup series just followed. And winning world, winning the World Cup in Fort William that year was insane. Like I, I never even imagined that. Well, even at whatever level I was at in the sport, I never imagined that Fort William would be a world cup that I would win one day. That is just like a prestigious hard track. You've got girls that are so strong there. And I was just in shock and in awe. And then, yeah. And then carrying the leaders journey into the Jersey, sorry, (laughs) into the next race kind of put me off a little bit. If I'm honest, it kind of, I wasn't expecting it and I wasn't, um, 
going for the overall, but it just kind of happened. So it definitely made that season a little bit mentally hard. Yeah. Does it take a bit of focus away from Cairns? Like, were you tempted to chase the overall or was Cairns always going to be the goal? Cairns is always going to be the goal, but when you got the leader's jersey on, you don't let that one slide either. So it was definitely, yeah, it was definitely not, it, it's a hard one because I wanted to be fresh for Cairns, but I also I had the leaders jersey, so I wanted to do well at the World Cups as well. And um, it's definitely a hard balance that year, but kind of let that one slide, didn't I? <laughs> I messed up <laughs> so in a what, few races that year, so. Fair enough. What what no, prep did you do specifically for Cairns then? Like you said, you were getting ready just to be kind of perfect for that track. What did you yeah. do differently that you maybe wouldn't do for a normal World Cup season? Um, I think it was just less variety. I mean, when you're training for a normal World Cup series, you need variety because the tracks are all different. But for Cairns, I was training for the sprint. I was training for the style of track that it was, like pumping. I needed a certain type of strength. Um, I needed a certain type of type of fitness. We knew all the areas that I needed to be fit. We knew the times that were going to be on the track. So it was just like I just spent so much time training specifically for that one track that I didn't have any other track on my mind. But when you train that hard for something, the other tracks you don't lose much. You just don't have that variety of training that you would have if you're just training for the World Cup overall. Yeah, yeah. So how did you feel when that race finally came around then? Talk us through it from your perspective. Um, I was excited. I was – I loved every moment of that race. It was so great to have my family there, my friends. You know, everyone was around. I felt super confident. I loved the track. I was like – I definitely had like really great practice sessions and, you know, I, I felt nervous, but I wasn't feeling too anxious about it. And I knew like, I honestly knew my preparation was the best that it possibly could have been. I couldn't have prepared for that race any more than I did. And, um, whatever happened happened, but I couldn't have done more. Yeah. You guys stayed at home that week as well, did you? Yeah, I stayed at home. I don't know. If, I think Michael stayed at my parents' house. So we kind of just like, you know, slept in our own bed and hung out with our friends. And yeah, I mean, it was the dream. Yeah. <laughs> I, just, I just pedaled to the track every day from home. Amazing. Yeah, it was literally. I mean, it was even funny because the suburb I lived in, my one of my best friends on the circuit, Emily Siegenthaler, she'd ride past every day and we'd ride to the track together. So it was was like a holiday. (laughs) Nice. Yeah. That was the week Rachel went out in, was it qualifying or practice with a broken collarbone, I think? Yeah, time training. I like, we had, it's not really qualifying at World Champs, but it's still a timed run at a time kind of like seating I guess and I come down doing my run she'd left before me and I come around the corner she was laying on the middle of the track and I was like whoa so I stopped and yeah she'd broken her collarbone so I actually walked with her back to the top of the track and I think 
I think my brother's on the side of the track, which is super random, and he pushed her bike back to the top. And then um, I had to restart my run. <laughs> Red wow. flag, obviously. That, yeah. yeah. And did that super put, random. did that kind of put more pressure on you? Because I guess it's one less competitor in the final. It makes it even more likely that you're going to take the win. How did that make you feel? Yeah, that's true because she had been winning when we had World Cups there. She was winning them. So I had to work really hard because she was very fast on the Cairns track. So her being taken out of the race was a huge deal and kind of puts the – it's the same at Fort William when she um, got taken out of Fort William. I'm pretty sure she did. Yeah, she separated her shoulder. Um, yeah. It puts the same pressure on you because you're like, well, there's actually a chance here that – you know, this is real and this can really happen. And it's ironic that the same thing happened in the same year kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. For sure. Oh, yeah, because it was the same Fort William, wasn't yeah, it, where, where yeah. she did a so show, yeah. The same. I guess I was kind of used to the feeling, but, <laughs> um, yeah, so her getting taken out was definitely a big deal for sure. Yeah. So t- talk us through, like, the – being at the top of the hill, ready for your race run, and then and then how that run kind of panned out for you. Yeah, so uh, usually at most World Cups, I have like a pretty routine warm-up session, which helps a lot when it comes to the nerves. But when I was in the start gate, I could hear the crowd in the rock garden just going absolutely crazy from the start gate. <laughs> and you sit in the start gate for three minutes and I could just hear this roar from the rainforest and I just started shaking and I was nervous and I was just like, this is going to be insane. This is so mental because they obviously had the start list and they were just roaring from the rock garden. And then <laughs> I could hear it and then I just like, it got, you know, the timer counted down and it was about time for me to start and I started. I could just hear them roaring the whole way down and I hit that corner, this corner. I went around one corner, my foot came out and I'm like, you need to calm down, this is loose. And I was just riding like an animal. Went through the <laughs> rock garden, I wanted to shut my eyes like, this is so gnarly, just a roar of chainsaws and screaming crowd. And then come out of that section, come around the corner, and that's the next corner is kind of where I lost my front wheel and and crashed over the bars. And I was like, and I was just on the ground in an instant. Yeah, it was a pretty yeah. hard crash, wasn't it? You hit your head pretty hard. Yeah, I hit my head so hard that I like opened my eyes and I was like a little bit confused about where I was. <laughs> And all in a, a matter of a few moments, I was like, I'm, whoa, get back on your bike, you know, get back on your bike. Got back on my bike, like, whoa, I've definitely knocked myself out just then. <laughs> and then I was like, ah, bummer, you know, you're like, fuck, that sucks. Pedaling, getting ready to go. And so I started going again, like, man. That sucks. You know, you kind of just saying it in your head as you're, like, going. And then, you know, I had, like, I heard, because I was crowd the whole way down the track, and I just heard the crowd, like, cheering 
you know, I felt like they're like, it's okay, you know, cheering. And then as I got further down the track, the crowd, the tone got different. And it was more like, um, that's super weird. But it was like, you know, at first when I got up from my crash, it was like, ah, man, everyone was kind of with me. But then the tone got different. And I was like, what's going on? They started cheering and they started screaming like, go, like go. And I was like, some, you know, they're telling me to go. And I felt the crowd just saying, go, like keep going. And then I started feeling like the crowd was screaming at me to go. And I was like, something's going on. I need to go. I need to try. And I was like trying so hard. And I just felt the crowd just pushing me down the hill. And I got to the sprint and I just heard him like, keep going, just like roaring. And I got to the finish line. 1.5 back from the win. It was insane. Yeah, like, third place. Absolutely insane. Yeah, I thought I was going to be 10th. And I was just like, damn it, crash. You know, I crashed for ages. And yeah, it was like 13 just, seconds you lost in that split, I think. Yeah, exactly. And just hearing the crowd go from like, oh, you know, damn it, to like, go, go, go. And I think they just knew that I had to go and they were just like, prompting me to just go and as insane I was like this means something so the crowd got me the medal that day because I had no idea so I pushed with everything I had just because the crowd was telling me to so that's what it's like being at home I mean the weirdest thing was <laughs> I was super dazed when I got to the bottom super days like my physio came straight to me because she knows me like super well she's like are you okay and I had to lay down because I was like whoa just so extremely overwhelmed confused bleeding like what just happened I didn't even really acknowledge what had just happened so felt kind of weird yeah definitely what uh, when did it kind of start to become real when did you start to process what had happened that day yeah like I guess as time went on it was it was almost relief that it was over but extremely disappointing and that would have been the um, medal ceremony right when we yeah. went we went on the podium I was like man this is disappointing <laughs> and I knew that that was kind of my chance at the at the gold medal and at the rainbow jersey like I knew there was plenty of opportunities that a lot plays into um, getting that kind of rainbow jersey once in your life and kind of can't let the opportunities slide. So, yeah, it was definitely the podium. I just remember me and Michael after the podium ceremony were sitting together like in the chairs that are under the tent behind the podium and um didn't even need to say words to each other because he finished second by less than a second. Yeah. So words like need not be said, but we just sat together just knowing that we're both heartbroken. And I guess kind of nice at least to be in that like family environment when something like that happens. Yeah, for sure. I mean, Everyone was devastated for us because they know how passionate, how hard we worked and how hard we trained. 
And so that was hard because being around everyone kind of devastated for you. But I think the best is being with him because there's no one else on the planet that knew how I felt as much as he did because we felt the same. Yeah, tough day for sure. Did you you use that kind of disappointment as an energy then to drive you onwards from there? Like how, how have you used that to your advantage? Yeah, so kind of crazy, but that was 2017. I 2018, I was burnt out. I was mentally like I, I uh, that was the last race of the year, and I went into training burnt out already. I was already kind of mentally and physically burnt out, and I feel like I was um, kind of beside myself for most of. 2018 I was kind of there but not really there if you know what I mean yeah like I had a a great season but after the spending years training for Cairns and the mental pressure and the stress and the lead up and the ending and the emotional come down off it kind of just carried me into the 2018 season I was tired. Yeah. 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 And at the end of 2018, you made some pretty big changes to the way you trained and the way you race. What, what drove that and what did you change? Yeah, I guess it wasn't till the end of 2018 and in the off season that I was like, I need, I needed a change because like I was fully prepared and I would have, I know that I would have won Cairns. I was fast enough to win Cairns. I was the fastest rider. Um, if I didn't crash, I so I knew I did all the right training, all the right preparation. You know, everything was good. And at the end of 2018, I didn't um, – it's almost like I didn't want to feel the feeling that I had. I didn't want to be oh, – it's hard to explain. I didn't want to be – attached to cans at all anymore I wanted everything to change I wanted to have a different coach like I wanted to have a new coach uh, a new set of rules for the off season a new approach I wanted everything from like the end of 2018 back to be cleared from my memory and I wanted to start again I wanted to be fresh and I wanted 2019 to to come off something fresh not come off losing a world championship that I had every chance to win if you Mm -hmm. know what I mean yeah like a reboot yes I need it wasn't that I wasn't like wasn't that the training wasn't working but mentally I needed something different I needed to change a reboot is exactly the right way to put it yeah and you found your new coach off Instagram yeah yeah so um I followed like a chick I never tell anyone who my coach is but I followed this chick on Instagram I was like man she's fit she's strong I found out who coached her messaged him like this is super random but like do you want to be my coach I'm and then I explained everything to him I said like I wanted something fresh and new I wanted um to work with someone who doesn't work with anybody that I know I wanted 
everything to be completely separate. I didn't want him to work with any other rider that I knew. I didn't even want him to be from the sport. And I didn't want him to have worked like with Michael or I just wanted everything to be new and fresh so that I could be new and fresh. I was stale. I was in a rut. I was, you know, doing the same things. And he said, yeah, I mean, we can try. Why not? And I was like, sick. And that was the beginning of, um, I think, October. I started a completely new program, completely different to anything I'd ever done. Yeah, that must have felt exciting, though, to do something different exciting. after all those seasons. Like exciting, motivating. I was like pumped. It's like even if the training was or wasn't good, the fact that I was so motivated to train and do it meant that I was getting more than 100% out of the training anyway. Awesome. And yeah. that was the whole idea was to have a new mindset. Yeah, and I read somewhere you said it took a while for you to learn to commit mentally to riding as fast as your body was now able to go. Yeah. How, how, how did that feel? That must have felt pretty strange. That was the crazy thing. And it was my dad that taught me that because I was like, man, I just, like I feel good. I'm making all this progress like in the gym and physically wise. And it was like not that I wasn't transferring. It was just like. I was just like, how is this going to work? And dad was like, it's just going to take time for your body mentally to catch up to how strong you are. And I just felt stronger on the bike, like I could do more, like I could commit to more. And before I had felt like I had reached my maximum and it was kind of like something else was holding me back. Now I got to like this strength an ability where I was the only thing holding me back, which meant the sky was the limit. Yeah. How did you approach like getting up to speed then and allowing your brain to let you ride as fast as you could? Um, that is just doing run after run after run after run after run until subconsciously you can shut your eyes and ride. Okay, and that's, that's this is where your dad comes in handy, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Poor dad. It's <laughs> and I and I mean Queenstown. I went to Queenstown for two months. Okay, and just did run after run after run after. I just needed to ride. I just needed my body to catch up, and um, I just had to ride and ride and ride, pretty much. Yeah, and your dad, your dad helps out with the uplift, doesn't he? When you're yeah, he when you're back drives us every time. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, he is uh, insane. He, I don't even know. Because between me and Michael, we would have done so much riding and he's been the one who's driven most of the runs. And he pushes you to do more, right? Yeah, he pushes us to be, to do more, to be more, to be better. To He's definitely like in life in general being one of the driving forces for us to do well. Awesome. And so yeah. you come into 2019, you must have been feeling pretty good and you went to Maribor and won qualifying and, you know, that puts you straight in the leader's jersey, which I guess <laughs> is it's kind of where you want to be, but it, it puts the target on your back as well, right? I mean, I just laughed. Me and I just remember me and Couscous's wife, who's like, I guess she's the team manager's assistant, you can say. We just laughed because 
well, I hadn't raced yet that year and um I was I I had raced world champs in my hometown. I was never gonna feel pressure like that again. When I won qualifying and got the leaders jersey, I just laughed. I was like, this is hilarious. It was like a new rule that meant that um, if the points changed in qualifying, the leaders jersey changed. And I, I literally was just like, well, this is funny. And it was just like, let's see what tomorrow brings then. Fair play. And was going for it in qualifying part of your strategy that year to, to help take the overall? Because there's points there as well, yeah? Yeah. Well, in general, no, it wasn't. In I went into that year saying I'm just going to ride as fast as I can in every run that the clock's ticking. It wasn't because I was, like, going for the overall. I was just trying to be a better rider. And um, so every time the clock was ticking, I was going fast, and it just happened to be that I won every single qualifying round except one. And yeah, if I hadn't, I wouldn't have won the overall. Yeah, true, true. So, yeah, it was tight. Yeah. Yeah, the overall yeah. was so tight that if I hadn't have done that, then the overall was gone. So it worked out well. And it also worked out well for me in the sense that I was getting used to racing fast whenever the clock was ticking. Yeah, definitely. And so, I mean, Tani won that first round in Maribor and, and took the leader's jersey away, but yeah. got injured very early in in Fort William, which was the next yeah. race that year. So by the end of that Fort William weekend, you were really close to Rachel in the overall. Yeah, At that point, I mean, did you feel like it was on, like the battle was oh, ready to yeah. go? It was because Fort William was going to be the, the test and I wasn't far off Tani and Rachel. I got third in Maribor super close to them but in Fort William I was less than a second off Rachel in the mud and being close to Rachel in Fort William you know that it's on for the rest of the season and she knew and I knew and I was like yep this is gonna be an intense season for sure awesome and you're back to back with Leergang that year as well so you're literally like straight in the trucks and over there and that was your first ever win where Rachel was competing, I think. Is that true? Yeah, it's um, the first time we had both started and I had won. So, Does that feel, is that different to other wins? Yeah, for sure, because people say things like Rachel wasn't there, Tiny wasn't there, Pom Pom wasn't there. When I, um, when Rachel did her um, Achilles, I was leading the series before she got injured. And yeah. that was like as a lot of, not a lot, some people said like, yeah, but Rachel this, tiny that. And I was like, I was leading the series when Rachel got injured. And well, you I, were leading it from Leah gang, weren't you? I, yeah. think, I think that was when yeah, you took exactly, the jersey because, back. Yeah. Um, she, I I won qualifying at Leo gang which meant that we were super close in points because she won Fort William, obviously, but I won Fort William qualifying. So once it came to Leo game where I won qualifying, we were so close and that was an, that's an insanely tight track. So she crashed then in her race run, which put me in the lead because I won the race. Then I was in the lead going into the next race, which was must have been Leger. Oh, it's Valnord, I think, next. Oh, Valnord, that's funny. Yeah, that's funny. I crashed in Valnord. 
Yeah, in qualies so, and race run. Yeah, yeah, yeah like six thousand times. I don't even know why. <laughs> <laughs> I was you, feeling all the mental pressure. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, are you feeling the pressure at that point because you're you're leading the series. You're kind of a good way through the series as well. Yeah, the problem was is that I Valnord like suits me, and I've had a few chances there where I've could have won and I've crashed or I've had a mechanical or something like that. And I was like, oh man, I can really do well in Valnord and, you know, get some good points and maybe get a comfortable lead. No, that was never going to happen, was it? And I just crashed out. It's complete. It was a s- extremely hard conditions that year. And I, uh, yeah. Did not finish well that, <laughs> that time, but kept the overall, which is yeah. Lovely. Was that a turning point though in the season for how you approach the races? Yeah. Were you starting to think about, hang on a minute, maybe I need to tone it back a touch just to focus on the overall here? Exactly, and unfortunately, that was the time where, like, Couscous was a huge help mentally. Um, in 2019 and we would discuss everything and we're like this this is a game now this is like we can actually go for the overall but we have to be smart about it and you know obviously Andorra wasn't smart but we were still kind of at that place where it's like yeah win or lose you know ride or die blah 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 once it got to Andorra, it's like, yeah, now we have to ride smart and we're not riding 110% anymore. We've got to tone it back a bit. And we've had to yeah. race by race plan how we were going to approach each race depending on how I was riding the track, the conditions, the weather, who was riding well, blah, blah, blah. So we just Yeah, it gets to... more strategic. Strategic, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So then you were on to Leje and like you said, Rachel got injured, uh, did her Achilles on that. That drop was pretty horrible, wasn't it? Towards the bottom of the track. I was in my pits crying, saying, I don't want to do that drop. That drop is so scary. I don't know what I'm going to do. Knowing that going around is like three or four seconds and the track is going to be such tight times. Couscous walked in and he said, Rachel has just snapped her ankle. No one knew what happened, so we were saying broken ankle. So I was out the back of the pits crying and he walked in and said, she's broken her ankle on the drop. And he said, if you don't feel comfortable doing it, don't do it. And I was like, what? She did what? And um, people were just dying on it like Nina just went OTB on her Mariana landed and bounced and crashes just the stupidest drop in a track ever absolutely stupid and um yeah when she broke her Achilles I was devastating for sure yeah yeah because she was your closest championship rival at that point but you you did the drop didn't you yeah no I ended up doing it (laughs) How did, how did you approach but, getting uh, through it? Um, so I knew I could do it. I'd seen some people do it. And I, I mean, I'd like, I'm, I'm very calculated in that regard. If I don't, if I, if I can't do something, I won't do it. If I'm not sure I won't do it. But if I, if I know, you know, the entry into it, how to land, and everything I'll do it and the reason I knew is because Michael told me and he's always been 
you know, that person to me, like, yeah, you can do it. You just need to do this, that, and the other thing, and you'll be fine. So he told me that. And then, um, yeah, and I was able to do it fine. And I only did it when I needed to do it, which was qualifying in the race and a couple of times in practice. But I got the strongest um, strapping tape that you could get and completely strapped my ankles rigid. Ah, smart. Yeah, so yeah. that you couldn't really do too much no, damage if you, uh, you flat landed. I could not even hardly move my ankles. They were strapped so rigid. Jeez, did it make riding the rest of the track hard to be strapped? Oh, like yeah, that for or? sure. <laughs> it like definitely <laughs> gave me pumped up feet, but it was not worth the risk because I already don't have some ligaments are snapped in my right ankle and torn in my left ankle. So okay. they're quite loose. And um, I was like, I'm not taking the risk. Uh, I mean, if Rachel can do it, anyone could have done it. So, yeah, yeah I wasn't taking done, the risk. It? I just strapped them all up and I was good to go. Yeah, and you took the win and you look you look pretty surprised by that one. Yeah, I was like, it is amazing because that definitely, um, like for sure the other races definitely showed me that I was fast but this race proved to me that yeah you are like this is this is the proof you're riding fast you're winning you're you're fast enough to win you're like winning races this year and that's sick and that was like I guess that was the overwhelming part of that race is it was like that was when I realized that I'd done it I'd reached like the top I'd reached the point where I had worked so hard to get to yeah and Maureen also moved up into second in the overall that weekend with her result. Did yeah. You, did you think that she could be much of a threat at that point? Like, yeah, she was riding good all year. People just hadn't noticed. <laughs> she was a machine. Yeah. I did things on the tracks that year that I'd never done, and it was because of her. We pushed each other to our limits. She's so gnarly and, I mean, I was gnarly that year as well and we pushed each other to our absolute limits. Yeah, it was good to watch for sure. Yeah. And with yeah. Rachel out of contention, did she give you a bit of advice on how to approach the overall? Mm, no, not really. Oh. We didn't really okay. speak about it. Fair enough. I thought yeah. I'd heard that somewhere, but. Yeah, she might have and I forget. She <laughs> might have. She was definitely like. um Hmm. encouraging let's see okay cool yeah oh. and then and then vowed a soul after that uh leger round and marine looked really convincing there i think yeah. she took the win by like 11 seconds yeah she did yeah which is insane on a very rough track i mean that can be enough to dent anyone's confidence and leave them kind of puzzling and then maybe pushing too hard how did it feel for you and how did you deal with it um I mean, definitely Valdezol is a hard one for me, but I don't feel confident on that track. That's not like the style of track I've ever ridden before. I'm not used to it. And on the other hand, it's like Marin's favorite track in the whole wide world. So 11 seconds was devastating, but at the same time, I had a lot of excuses. Um, <laughs> I flew in... Not long before that race, I had like delayed flights. I was extremely jet lagged. And then on top of that, it's a track that doesn't suit me. So 
as bummed as I was, second place was still like a really good result for me at that track at that time. Okay. So yeah, the confidence is still high then. Yeah, I was I was fine with how that race went because it was like a kind of a one off and it was an accident like you can't be tired at that race and I was exhausted. If you know anything about jet lag and then just knowing how confident she is on a track like that, it was like we'll let this one slide. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. And then on yeah. to Lenza Hyder, which was a bit of a curveball, I guess, with the conditions it got yeah, super slippery for finals. Extreme curveball, yeah. Um, I was like, oh, finally back at a track that I can like send it and I felt super confident. I qualified first and I was comfortable on the track. And, um, yeah, I was like ready to you know, go for the win at that track because we were calculating the tracks. And um, I was like, yeah, I can go for the win. Woke up race morning, it was raining, and I was like, damn it. Got to step it back to that 95% again, take it safe. Like, yeah, that was a bummer because I really loved that track and the conditions that it was. And then race day just kind of threw the biggest curveball. Is it hard as as someone as competitive as you are to be able to focus on a win that's like a couple of months away rather than the win that's on the day? Like, do you find yeah, it hard? Awful. Yeah, like disappointing yeah. almost to have to throttle back a bit. Yeah, and it and it feels bad because people, like you're not, um, you're like, you have the future in mind and you have the overall in mind, but on the day people don't see that. So on the day it's it's whoever's winning is the best and they're the greatest and they're amazing and look at them go and you just have that not only are you balancing the overall all year, you're also never the best rider at, at any race. You're always kind of second best because you're the one focusing on the end result. So that- it is extremely disheartening sometimes for sure. Yeah. Do you ever start to feel that maybe you are second best? Like, does it get to you and and did it make you kind of doubt your performance or were you able to stay pretty strong? Mentally it does. It's hard. It's it's also having, like, someone as supportive as Couscous around reminding me, like, if I was alone, I would have struggled so much. But, you know, having the team support around me just, like, reminding me and... Um, ensuring me that it was okay and you know we had a plan is the only way I could have done it because if I was alone with my thoughts I would have struggled for sure it's the team that kind of helped me go from race to race strength to strength and just stay stay kind of strong all season fair play and yeah, yeah another one where marine took the win the points gaps closing so you arrive at snowshoe final round of the year you've got i think 150 point lead but there's no quality points yeah or everything's on the final run it's a track that you've not raced before i mean you must have been feeling pretty nervous i guess there's quite a lot of pressure there so much pressure yeah i can't even Words can't even explain how hard that race was. But at the same time, my mum came over, my sister came over, like I had a fair bit of my family there and that actually helped a lot. But when it comes down to that last run, it's you 
are the only one who can perform on that day and that was yeah it was that was a really hard race and it was good to have the support of of everyone there just just being there and supporting me and talking and yeah that it definitely wasn't as hard as Cairns world champs but that was extremely stressful but I'm lucky I had the experience of Cairns worlds to be able to set that aside and okay do rather than just completely send it just do what I needed to do and not overdo it if you know what I mean yeah, because you, ha- I think you had to get sick, didn't you? If Marine won, you yes. needed sick to take the win. Yes, and I was confident enough on the track to take the win, but only like on sections. So on the sections that I was like one hundred percent confident, I couldn't crash on. I went as fast as I could, and I think I overdid it on the safe side on the sections that I was a bit wobbly in, and um came together to finish fifth which was a very tight finish (laughs) (laughs) did you want did you did you want to know how marine had got on before you dropped in because she was already at the bottom by the time you started i knew because you wanted to or Um, because because, i found out by accident i was in the start gate there was 10 seconds to go and um there was an mc at the top because Uh, the track is kind of weird like the pits are at the top and the track finishes at the bottom of the chairlift, but there's nothing down there except the chair, so everything's kind of at the top. And um, 10 seconds before I left the start, he yelled out through his speakerphone, Marin just went into the lead. Helpful. Yeah, and I couldn't do anything with that. I just had to start my race. Did it? Did it change your feeling at that point in time or were you already kind of in the zone? Um, I mean, I was 10 seconds to go. I was in the zone until I heard that. And then five seconds, I was just like, ah. Uh, yeah, the whole run down, I was just like shaking, nervous, breathing, thinking, writing. Yeah, I had so many things going through my head. But thankfully I got down with – um. Not much up my sleeve, but I didn't throw it all, all away from, from being extremely nervous. And I think that was just experience from the years past, like from the injuries and from Cairns Worlds. I think I was just lucky that I had that mental experience to be able to hold on for the whole season and even up until yeah. that race run. And did you know as soon as you crossed the line, did you need to look back or could you tell from the crowd? I told I could tell from the crowd. Yeah, I could tell from the crowd. I didn't need to look. How did it feel? It must have been insane. Relief and just insane and overwhelming. And you don't even feel it in the moment. You're just like, it's just extremely overwhelming. And then you feel it for, I still feel it now. So you just feel it on and on and on and on. And it's amazing. Yeah. um, Something you've been striving for for so long, really, like work so hard. It must must feel incredible. Yeah, it's an insane feeling and also even just that year just giving up so so many opportunities to, to save it for that last race, even like giving up the chance at world champs because you don't want to get injured. And, yeah, it just made it all worth it once it, once it got, once I crossed that line and I, it's something that you have forever. So, 
yeah, I'll never, I'll never forget that feeling. Amazing. And all your family there or a lot of your family there as well. Yeah. Yeah. Which is super special. And it would have been a bummer if I didn't win the overall when they flew all the way over for it. <laughs> <laughs> be asking for a refund on their flight tickets. Yeah. They're like, oh gosh, don't come home. <laughs> <laughs> wicked, wicked. And you've, you've recently announced that you're going to step away from World Cup racing. When, yeah, when did you yeah, start to yeah. think about that and what drove that decision? Um, so, um, so my contract, um, is I'm in the first year of a two year contract. And last year I had a two last contract was two years. So before (laughs) my last contract, I said, I'll probably no at the end of the, my last contract, sorry, I thought to myself, I'll probably just ride for one more contract, which is two years. Uh So then I signed this two year deal. And after winning the overall and the, um, what do you call it? We'll just call it 2020. <laughs> this is a nightmare. <laughs> um, I obviously finishing the overall, I, I went straight into training. I had three weeks off, straight into training, started working so hard, was super pumped for 2020. Like, yeah, this is going to be my year. Like, you know, it's cool. I'm coming off an overall. I want to do another year. And then 2020 just went, and um, just ended up being such a shitty year. And I was I was peaking for a race and then it would get cancelled. Then I'd peak for the next race, cancelled. And it was just like so up and down with the training. I ended up training for a good 10 months and I was like, this is insane. And then they're like, oh, you're coming to Europe in two weeks, it's on. And I was like, man, this is hard. And I felt like I was tired already and got to Europe and no sun and it wasn't over 10 degrees the whole time I was there. (laughs) And I was just like, this is, it just, I just knew that I was going to, I didn't want to be too old when I retired. I didn't want to be injured. I didn't want to be racing races like, Uh, I don't really want to be here. Let's, I'll just make it to the end of the year, blah, blah, blah. So I knew that, um, this year would be my last year because I wanted to finish having trained like super hard, having still been like at the top, not injured. I wanted to leave with people saying she could have still, you know, won a race. I just wanted to leave on my terms in good condition, in good working order, and I wanted to finish on a high note and, you know, not kind of fall out of the sport. I just wanted to finish when I wanted to finish. Yeah, nice. And you definitely went out with a bang on uh, on your last yeah. run in loser. Yeah. And, uh, f- finished your career with no peak oh, on your helmet. Gosh, <laughs> what a classic. You know, I was just like, well, that's uh, first of all, that's 2020. And second of all, that is <laughs> definitely me because definitely known for some of the harder crashes that I've had. And I wanted to do a good run. I wanted to try my hardest. I wanted, you know, I didn't want to just have like this 80% run or this run where I didn't try and I tried so hard you know, and my splits were green and who cares if I crashed? And I, I crashed at the finish where everyone could see. It's like, it's kind of like what 
I wasn't going to finish better in the overall anyway. And, like, worst case, I've had to finish the race. I would have got third. It didn't really, you know, if I was going to win the race, then, yeah, maybe I'd be super bummed about the crash. It was kind of hilarious that I crashed on the last ever run I was going to do at a World Cup. Well, it was good to see you going all in. I went hard as I could. I was like, this is my last race. And you know what? And Couscous, my boss, he's like, I'm proud of you. Like, you gave it your all for sure. And you can see that from a mile away. Yeah. You've still found time for a little wave to the crowd, though, on that little (laughs) flat section. Yeah. I tried. I was planning that because I was watching the replay from the first race at Lusa. And I was like, Okay, that's a long enough straight to wave to the crowd. And then I was just like so puffed out in my race and I was like waving. People were like, were you like flipping away a butterfly or what were you doing? I was like, well, I was trying to wave, but obviously you couldn't tell. So that was useless. This <laughs> <laughs> is a bit funny retarded. stuff. What, yeah, was it, so. what was the feeling like from everyone else in the pits then? Was it kind of yeah. emotional doing your last yeah. one? Yeah. Um, I mean, with social distancing and you're not allowed to really see people in the pits, it's kind of hard. But everyone, my brother and, like, Red Bull together made this little video for me from people sending messages. And I was really, really shocked um, at the things that people thought of me and said about me. And that made me emotional. Like, yeah, just not I guess not really realizing the impact that I'd have or had over my career, and that that was quite emotional. Yeah, it's really cool. And what's yeah. what's next then? Are you able to talk a bit about what you're hoping to do over the next few years? Yeah, so I want, like I told you at the beginning, I'm doing um, a certificate in fitness, which gives me qualifications to be a trainer and have insurance to train people and. Once I get back home, I'm going to be doing my coaching, mountain bike coaching course so that I can be a qualified mountain bike coach. And my goal at home is to do one-on-one coaching. I want to be able to, you know, pass on some of my skills and just help out those who want to want to get better on their bike and stuff. But next year I'll be going to as many festivals, as many um, crankworks, races, any races that I get invited to, any events that I get invited to, festivals, I'm going to everything. I'm so excited that I can finally, like, I'm so serious about training and following a super strict training program that I never do anything. Next year, I just want to ride my bike, do all the disciplines at crankworks, race at festivals, hang out, party with people, like meet fans, meet sponsors, you know, and just have a good time on my bike and and hang out and and have fun. So that's the goal for next year. That sounds very exciting. It must be nice to be able to get off the leash a little bit. Yeah, and, like, I've already had so much opportunity since announcing that, like, come to this, come to that. I'm like, I can. I can say yes because I always (laughs) say no and I never have the opportunity. So, yeah, I'll still be racing, competing. Obviously, I'll still train. Probably not as like intensely as I did for World Cups, but um, yeah, I'll still I'll probably be around more, just be at less World Cups. Except that in saying that, I do I may attend some World Cups as an assistant manager to help out the boys on the team. 
Okay. I was going to say, will we see yeah. another World Cup comeback in five no. years' time? Because Greg's just shown it's possible to win at 38. Yes, which is very interesting. A lot of people do say that to me. But if you're not a woman, you don't understand a woman's mind, mental. It is like a, a much bigger fight for a woman to keep competing at that level when we have all this natural biological stuff going on in our brain. Uh, yeah, okay. Yeah, I hadn't yeah, thought about yeah, that side yeah, of things. Yeah, yeah fair it's, play. it's really, really different, I think. So 30s is a good time to kind of chill out on the extreme stuff. <laughs> yeah, well, and going out on a high, right? 2019 overall win, mm-hmm. you know, 2020 didn't deliver what anyone hoped, but yeah, exactly. it looked like you had fun and you pushed. So, yeah, yeah it's a good place exactly. to stop. Cool. Awesome. Well, it's been really interesting going through all that stuff. We're getting close to the end of our time, but we've got yeah. four questions that we ask everybody. Okay. So we'll hit those up real quick. Um, if our listeners had £150, which is about 275 <laughs> Aussie dollars, okay. to improve their performance on a bike, what would you recommend mm. they go spend it on? TracyHannahCoaching.com. Oh, that's so interesting. Oh, so performance on a bike go spend it on. Gosh, that's a hard question. I would say um spend it on getting gaining experience in your in the area that they wanna get better in. So if mm-hmm. they um wanna get better at riding enduro, well go spend the money on doing some shuttles or if they wanna same with doing downhill or if they need to get fitter, they're good at riding, they need to get fitter, go go spend it on getting some one-on-one coaching, spend it on getting some um, personal training sessions. I mean, there's so many valuable things you can spend it on. Yeah, it's sure. a tricky one like, to narrow down, isn't it? Super narrow. I guess it's personal preference, but it just depends what you're lacking the most and then you should really invest it in that probably okay good stuff second question if you could wind back the clock and sit down with yourself age 16 what advice would you give her chill out woman (laughs) (laughs) seriously chill out i would say you are 16 you have time okay and i i really 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 wish that i knew that when i was 16 is that i had time also um a super important one is don't don't put things off so like yeah I'll do that later I'll do this later it's like don't put off school don't put off uni don't put off that kind of stuff because you have time but that stuff gets harder as you get older I would definitely say stay in school (laughs) okay I would have told myself that for sure Good advice. All right, third question. If you could have a coaching session from anyone, past or present, who would it be and what would you want to learn? Oh, interesting. I would say... Hmm. I think I would say... Hmm. Aaron Gwynn, I reckon. Okay. Aaron Gwynn and I would want to learn what he does in a day because nobody knows do they it's a mystery one really knows i think i just like the mystery of aaron 
But I am super intrigued because he started late and I'd like to know how he got so fast so quick. Yeah, true. Yeah, he came yeah. to the sport late yeah, and it didn't take him long late. to stand on the top no, step, did it? No. Mm. To pick his brain. Yeah. All right. Final question. What do you do every day that you feel benefits you? Ooh. Hmm. Every day that benefits me. Um, does it have to be every day? Because I'm pretty lazy sometimes. <laughs> That's okay. You can be honest <laughs> about that. Um, I think, hmm, that's a hard one. I think it's, it's not training, but some kind of physical activity because I think daily, like a physical activity doesn't make a huge difference. But if you look back in a year and you've done like 300 days of physical activities, that's going to be a huge benefit. So I think, um, consistency is key. So if you're doing anything, do it every day. And one of my favorite sayings is, if you can't do it today, you won't do it tomorrow because tomorrow doesn't exist. Good one. That's a nice yeah. place to wrap up. Yeah. If people want to keep up to speed with what you're up to and follow your adventures, where's the best yes. place for them to look? Um, definitely on my Instagram is the most popular one, Little Trace 13 And um, when I get out of this hellhole, quarantine um i have started a youtube page and i want to do more vlogs and videos and things on that so that'll be my next project for the next few months awesome oh, i'll have to send me a link yeah. and i'll put it in the show notes for people yeah sure nice it's one. easy it's well, just tracing you know on youtube i guess oh i can work that out yeah. <laughs> cool well it's been really nice chatting and finding yeah, out you about so you much. and your career and uh yeah wish you all the best for the next years of fun and enjoying riding and yeah look forward to yeah. seeing how it all goes with the coaching and stuff thank you so much for the interview it was fun it's a, it's a pleasure nice one cheers tracy all righty all right that's it for this episode with tracy i hope you've enjoyed listening a massive thanks to kotick for supporting this episode of the show They've just launched their awesome new jet, the 140mm 29er do-it-all bike that promises to be a whole heap of fun. There's a limited amount of UK-made launch edition jets available now, and pre-orders are also open on the Taiwan-made versions too over at kotic.co.uk, where you'll also find a whole host of material about the bike, including a tech walkthrough from site and a launch video shot in a mine, as you do. All the links are in the show notes for this episode over on downtimepodcast.com. If you want to represent the show, then you can grab yourself a t-shirt, sweatshirt or a hoodie by heading over to downtimepodcast.com forward slash shop. Keep warm, look good and help support the podcast at the same time. You know what to do by now. Keep on spreading the word about the podcast. The more people who listen, the easier it is for me to keep this thing going. It really is that simple. Also, if you've got a couple of minutes, then a review on iTunes is also really helpful. All right, we've got another awesome episode coming up soon. But until then, get out and ride.